Behind the Knife, the surgery podcast. Relevant and engaging content designed to help you dominate the day. As a surgical resident, you are dedicated to mastering your craft. Logging cases shouldn't slow you down. Introducing Unera, streamlined, intuitive, and efficient. With a quick 20-second process, effortlessly log cases and utilize advanced AI for precise CPT code suggestions. Unera's sophisticated interface also ensures ACGME requirements are always at your fingertips. Unera is developed exclusively for residents and is completely free of charge. Elevate your case logs. Download Unera today. That's U-N-I-R-A, Unera. So welcome back to Behind the Knife. This is Patrick Georgioff, and I'm here with BTK Education Fellows Dan Sheese and Jessica Millar. So we're here to talk about entrustable professional activities or EPAs. And this is a term that I think a lot of you may have heard about or maybe not. And this is a tectonic shift in how we approach surgical training in the United States. And there's an awful lot to talk about here. So what are EPAs? How will they affect you? What do you need to know? We're going to cover all that today. So we know a lot of our listeners share these same questions, which is why we're so excited to welcome Dr. George Sorosi, Professor of Surgery and General Surgery Residency Program Director at the University of Florida, who's offered to shed some light on this new way of surgical education and assessment. Dr. Sorosi is not only a surgeon and program director, but he was also one of the key leaders for the American Board of Surgery EPA Advisory Council and really helped make EPA a reality. Thank you so much for joining us today, Dr. Sorosi. That's my pleasure. All right. So, Dr. Tracy, before we jump into these these questions, you have a, a rich background. And when it comes to EPAs, uh, time at the ABS as a program at the University of Florida. So can you sh- set the uh, stage for us here and, and give us a little background? So I, I uh, spent six years as a, first a director and then a counselor of the uh, American Board of Surgery. My term ended in uh, uh, June of uh, 2022, about a year ago. And uh, during that time, um, the ABS had sort of committed to exploring competency-based medical education and and decided to um, to really focus on entrustable professional activities as a way to think about competency-based resident education and surgery as part of uh, the ABS's commitment to sort of making residency better. I was uh, fortunate during my term on the board to serve as the chair of the assessment committee. And in that role, I was also the the lead of the ABS EPA pilot, which was uh, basically a feasibility trial that was conducted in 28 residencies across the United States, you know, a a really rich selection, mostly of university-based programs, but some more independent residencies uh, to really over a couple of year period, figure out if, if we could add EPA assessment to general surgery residencies and do it in a way that uh, was not overly onerous to make sure the assessments actually made sense to faculty and residents and uh, to figure out if we could do it. And during that time, we learned a lot. I am officially off the American Board of Surgery, and I think it's probably important for me to say that I don't speak on behalf of the American Board of Surgery, although uh, I'm super familiar with the project. But as a program director, I face, I think, the same challenges that, you know, 300 and 300 odd people face, surgeons face right now, figuring out how to implement this. And so... Uh, certainly look forward to talking about that today. Awesome. So let's get started. My first question for you is where did these EPAs come from and why or what was the drive for this change in the way that we assess surgical residents, the competency and ability? So um, uh, EPAs are actually not uh, an idea that originated in the United States. In fact, the originator of EPAs is a Dutch educator, Ali Tankate. 
And uh, he really conceptualized the notion that I think is intuitive to all of us, that in the process of graduate medical education, what we do is we take learners uh, from a very basic level, and over time, they progress to the point where they become independent practitioners. And we do that in an environment where we basically trust people. And, and that process of trusting people is actually a really important form of feedback that we do every day, but we've never done a good job of capturing it. And you know, the professional activities are things that surgeons do every day, which is what makes them so relevant. Um, some other uh, people have coined other terms. I think essential professional activities is something I've heard. I've also heard a really excellent uh, description of it. They're everyday physician activities. Uh, it, you know, it's a really intuitive concept, and and I think you know, Dr. Tenkate articulated it. We all recognize it. We've just never really captured that information and used that information in a way that made sense to residents. I think, and that's the I think the revolution of that entrustable professional activities potentially offer. The ABS came out with these EPAs, but how, how were these 18 EPAs originally developed? So they, it was developed in a couple of phases. So initially, a bunch of senior, senior surgical educators were got together by the ABS in about, I think it was in about 2016 at the beginning of an ABS retreat. And they got in a room and they brainstormed and they, they asked the question of a bunch of experienced educators, what things do surgeons need to be able to do? What are sort of the key things in general surgery? And they actually came up with a list of about 50 things. You know, that range from things as simple as inguinal hernias and appendectomy to things as complicated as abdominal aortic aneurysm. It became clear that uh, it was very hard to decide on a short list. And, you know, 50 assessments is, is daunting in and of itself. And so what happened is they thought a little bit about it and they identified five things that everybody could, could agree that a general surgeon uh, needed to be able to do. And those were the initial five EPAs for the pilot. They were inguinal hernia. Uh, care of a patient with gallbladder disease, care of a patient with right lower quadrant pain, appendicitis, uh, seeing a general surgery consult, and the initial evaluation and stabilization of a trauma patient. Things that I think we would all agree are sort of absolutely in the core of general surgery. Uh, those were used in the pilot. And then once it became clear that, the, that it made sense to develop a full set of EPAs, uh, the ABS convened a scope council, a bunch of people identified from various stakeholders in surgery. There were um, three uh, general surgery board directors. There were three program directors selected by the Association of Program Directors in Surgery. There was one uh, board director from each of the other specialty boards in the American Board of Surgery, so complex uh, surgical onco general surgical oncology, uh, surgical critical care, uh, pediatric surgery and vascular surgery, the, all of the people who receive general surgery trainees and need to understand you know, what the core of general surgery is. And uh, we also had representatives from the RRC and, um, and from the ACGME. And so we had a really broad set of stakeholders. And this group was actually asked to sit down and identify sort of key aspects in general surgery that could be assessed in every general surgery resident in every general surgery training program in the United States over the course of their five years of training. Um, you know, those of you who are assessment geeks know that, you know, to assess somebody's ability to perform an operation, you probably need to see them somewhere between 10 and 25 times to form a stable and reliable uh, assessment of someone's actual ability to perform it. And so as this group was tasked with identifying things, we looked at a lot of data and we identified the things that on average general surgery residents report in their case logs, you know, in the range of 15 to 25 times. And so you can see the list of topics starts to get pretty small pretty fast. And so this group really went through lists and winnowed that list until we identified 
these 18 topics that we thought really were frequently performed by all general surgery residents. They were essential to the practice of general surgery. They could be assessed in every program and assessed in a way that they should have enough touches that we could determine their competence in these things. Yeah. And so this sounds uh, excellent. Um, and the question really, though, is, is does, it, does it work? And so what did that pilot study uh, show you uh, in terms of efficacy and how that data can be used to allow surgeons to grow? The pilot showed us, I think, that in the best circumstances with the right support, it was possible to collect a lot of assessments, that it was possible for clinical competency committees to look at these assessments. And I think what was really, I think, interesting is they could look at them in a blinded fashion. So here's resident X. They have the following EPAs. You know, what sort of some, you know, we've got seven assessments that show that, you know, say there are four at direct supervision and three at indirect supervision, but the last three they had are actually at the indirect supervision level over the last six months. And the, the comments suggest that this resident is really able to, you know, begin to do this by themselves and sort of shows that trajectory. And and the clinical competency could look at that resident and say, hey, for this EPA, they're probably you know, our best guess of where they are is that they're in indirect supervision. And so uh, so we learned that that could be done the best case. Now, I don't want to make this sound too rosy. We had 28 programs. We probably had uh, six or seven of those 28 programs that nailed it. They collected lots of evaluations from lots of faculty members on lots of, of residents. We actually had two programs that never collected any EPA assessments over the course of the entire pilot. And then there obviously was a nice distribution where some programs had a few faculty members who did it on some residents. And, and, but what we learned from that is in the right circumstances with the right supports, and, and I think the right supports were lots of faculty and resident training, kind of continuous reminding of both the residents and the faculty this was important. And, um, and uh, you know, using a smartphone app is incredibly helpful in this. Every surgeon carries a smartphone. Every, and and we're, we're a part of it all the time. And when we're not scrubbed, we're largely looking at our smartphones. And if you make an easy to fill out evaluation on a smartphone that takes a minute or two, people will actually do it. And then the other thing that we learned is it's really important for, for the leaders at an institution to buy in. So the institutions that were most successful had a ton of chair support. And so it's that kind of departmental commitment to this that is really important. And then I think that, you know, the recognition is it has to provide value. And, and what we learned actually in some of the best programs is they found that over the course of the two-year pilot, the number of teaching assistant cases their chiefs were graduating with went up, right? Because the chief residents were getting assessed and getting entrusted and they could go to their faculty and say, hey, uh, you know, I'm, I'm the fourth year resident on emergency general surgery call tonight. We got this appy, but, you know, I've gotten a bunch of practice ready EPA assessments um, how about I take the second year resident through this? Look, a bunch of the faculty say I can do this. I know you and I haven't done one together, but look, I've got all these evaluations that say I can do it. Why don't you let me try? Yeah, having that objective data looking at serial evaluations of competency makes it really makes a lot of sense. And if you sit and think about it a little bit and dig into the literature, there's a lot to support all that. And but that that doesn't necessarily make it easier to no. uh, deploy. And uh, you you alluded to some of those challenges. So before we kind of jump into that, and that's really what we want to talk to you about today is what are the challenges coming up? What do current residents uh, need to know whether they're that first incoming class in which EPAs are going to be critical to uh, for them to f finish training? Yeah. Or maybe they're not. Maybe they're in their chief year and they need to know how this affects them. Um, but before we do that, you, you mentioned the ACGMB, the ABS, et cetera. How do all these things fit together? So there are milestones that the ACGME has determined. Uh, the ABS is now releasing EPAs. How do those fit together and, and what do people need to know? Yeah. 
So I think that's a really important question. So one of the things that everybody listening to this podcast, at least every faculty member listening to the podcast is going to think is like, okay, one more thing. I need to do one more evaluation. And so um, the ACGME competencies and the milestones are required for training programs and they are not going to go away. So if adding another assessment is going to be useful, they need to work together. And so one of the things that's really important for faculty to understand is that the ABS EPAs are written in such a way where the individual summative entrustment ratings are mapped individual milestone levels. And so there are 18 general surgery milestones. And I use the milestones, they're really sub-competencies, but we all call them milestones. Each of those 18 milestones is mapped to multiple EPAs. Only three of the milestones are not well mapped to EPAs. And, and, and they are um, practice-based learning and improvement too, which is about developing your own independent learning plan. The other one uh, that isn't well mapped is performance of administrative duties, right? Again, not really something that you can see in the care of an individual patient. And I think one of the things that's really important about EPAs is an EPA assessment is based on direct observation of patient care by the faculty member or the resident providing some of the care. They don't have to watch everything, but they have to watch enough of it and be able to verify the, the care provided in order to be able to assess it. Um, and so, but you know, the performance of administrative duties. And then the last one that's not well mapped is the is the maintenance of physical and emotional health and help seeking, which is actually really about physicians taking care of their own wellness, which again is not really something that you can directly observe in patient care. So of the 18 EPAs, 15 are really well mapped. And so if if you have summative assessment ratings of all 18 EPAs for an individual resident every six months, in essence, those will pre-populate your milestones. Having um, you know done milestone ratings, I would say that although I would love to say that most CCCs have a rich data set to make it, a lot of this is sort of our best guess. And a lot of it is not based on a lot of data. What the EPAs have been designed to do is to really provide a lens to allow frontline clinical faculty to say, I saw this person take care of a gallbladder. They have a pretty, they understand the pathophysiology. Uh, they can execute the operation. They can do a, a detailed workup. That's the language of a frontline surgeon. And, and you give a rating on that EPA and under the hood, if you were, each of those EPA levels are mapped to individual milestones. And when you give that summative entrustment rating, it implies about five or six milestone ratings. And so if you do that over all 18 milestones uh, or all 18 EPAs, 15 of your 18 milestone ratings for that resident every six months will be pre-populated. Some of you may know, or some of our listeners know, and certainly our Canadian listeners know, that the Royal College of Physicians and Surgeons in Canada made the commitment to moving to all competency-based medical education across all of GME in Canada. And they're mostly done with that. And uh, their general surgery programs have been doing EPAs now for a couple of years. And um, some of their equivalent of the CC's leaders have said that they're actually able to shorten their CC meetings for a medium-sized residency from about seven hours to two or three hours. Your answer helps clarify that this is going to be nothing but helpful, right? To provide more objective data to both the CCC and to the resident trainee yeah. when it comes to understanding their performance and also how their performance stacks up against their peers. APAs informing milestones in a good way, but those milestones are still to me a little. Yeah, a little the, the bit, milestones. Eric Hombo, who is the director of milestone research at the ACGME, is actually one of the advisors to the ABS EPA process. And so Eric has been involved in the in the whole process. And so I think that that is, I think, something that it's really important that 
that the listeners understand is, is, you know, this feels like the ABS is doing this, but this is really a collaboration between all of the stakeholders in, in surgical education. And, and I would define those stakeholders as learners. And so we involved, you know, ACS uh, residents and young uh, fellows in the process. Uh, we involved uh, the RRC in the process. We involved the APDS in the process. And we involved the ACGM in addition to the board. So, Dr. Soros, I want to kind of switch gears here into more of the implementation and, and how this is how this is going to work for the residents and and the attendings listening. Can you kind of go through and cover what the kind of what the perfect scenario is in regards to is this going to be something initiated by the resident for every case? Are the faculty the ones primarily responsible for getting this completed? Uh, how is this going to work? And you can even use a, a situation using a specific EPA. So let's let's talk about two situations. Let's talk about the ideal situation, and and let's talk about what I think is is likely reality. So in the ideal circumstance, every covered activity of an EPA, you know, if you take care of a patient, you know, with say right lower quadrant pain with an attending, like every time you do that you should probably ask for, the resident should probably ask for an EPA evaluation, right? And the attending should fill it out, right? That would be in the ideal world, right? Because what we, you know, what we know from formative surgical assessments is it takes lots of surgical, it takes lots of assessments to get a stable estimate of where someone's performance is, right? And I think one of the things that's true of clinical care is they, it occurs in different contexts, it occurs in different complexity. You know, some patients are easier than others, right? And so those complexities are necessary because to say that someone's you know, practice ready to care for a patient with a gallbladder, you, they need to be able to take care of all of that, right? And and we need to try and assess it as much as possible. So in a perfect world, yeah, every time they would do it, they would. But, you know, those of you who live in the real world know that that's probably never going to happen, right? And and I think it may never happen for a bunch of reasons. Some attendings won't ever fill the things out. And I think more importantly, many residents are a little bit feedback shy, right? And I say that not to be mean, but they love feedback when like, oh, you did a great job. You really got this. But, you know, when they do a poor job, they're unlikely to initiate feedback. Like if you started a cholecystectomy and, you know, 30 minutes later, right, you've made no progress and the attending's like, hey, let's switch. And then, you know, they do a bunch of stuff and they're like, okay, now you can clip the structures and take the gallbladder off the gallbladder bed. You're probably not going to ask for feedback on that case, right? Because you know that this is both formative feedback and an evaluation. And, and you don't feel like that was your best performance. But the truth is, that probably is going to be the most informative performance to help you get better. And so I think in a perfect world, you know, we'll set some quotas, right? And and I think a reasonable thing is to ask every resident to get between two and four EPA evaluations a week on a rotation. If you think about it over the course of your residence, let's say you get four evaluations a week. Over the course of a year, you're going to get 200 evaluations. And over the course of five years, you're going to get a thousand evaluations. We know um, from the pilot that it probably takes somewhere between about three and five evaluations to be able to make a summative entrustment decision. That's not to say that you're entrustable to do this, but that's for us to say that you've moved from level one to level two, from limited participation to direct supervision. You probably need four or five uh, evaluations across different attendings and different complexities to do that. You know, uh, if you think about it, right, the way we typically do operative feedback, and I think most of our focus is on operative feedback, we learned from the pilot that we tend to entrust people in the pre- and post-operative phase earlier in their training than we do in the intraoperative phase, which totally surprises no one who thinks about the process, right? But it, it takes longer to get trusted in the operating room. And so you probably need more assessments intraoperatively than you do pre- and post-operatively. Now, that's good because that's what happened in the pilot. It was about 
about um, if you look at the study, about two thirds of the assessments were intraoperative, and only about a third of them were pre and postoperative. But I think that both residents and attendings will need to initiate these. I think residents will be really happy to initiate these with attendings who you know provide useful feedback and are are you know when they do well. And I think that it'll take some faculty members who are initiating these when people don't do well, because honestly, those will be the moments that are probably the most teachable. If you think about getting feedback, somebody telling you a bunch of things at the end of the case is a terrible thing, right? You're super cognitively loaded at that point. You know, you're trying to get the patient off the table. You're trying to write, you know, the post-op orders. You're trying to get the next patient into the room. And so it's good to get that feedback, but it's even better for somebody to dictate that feedback so that at the end of the day, you can listen to a collection of feedback. And you can really pause and reflect on it. We know that's how adult learners learn. And, and residents are the, the quintessential adult learner. Now, a word from our sponsor, Unero. Residency is busy, insanely busy. There are so many tasks vying for your time. For me, one of the most painful was logging cases. I, for one, always wish for an app designed with residents in mind to make tracking my milestones easier. Unero is just that, the best app for case logging. Think about it. Why should it take 90 seconds to log a case? With Unera, you can do it in less than 20. That's more time for patients and more time for learning. And finding the right CPT code, Unera's AI-powered search function does the legwork. No more second guessing and no more time wasted endlessly scrolling through options. Yeah, and Unera also syncs seamlessly with ACGME. No need to duplicate efforts. Plus, with Unera, staying on top of ACGME requirements is no longer a challenge. Unera's sleek interface keeps tracking your progress in real time. Best of all, Unera is free for residents to download and use. If you're a resident and want to streamline your case logging, visit unera.io. That's U-N-I-R-A dot I-O. Or download the Unera app. So this is, as you mentioned, evaluation and, and these like day-by-day assessments that we've been doing for a long time, whether we consciously know it or call it that. But it does, EPAs do introduce a different type of workflow into our day-to-day. And so what type of training is available or do you have planned even in your program to make residents aware of how to utilize this to best help them and then also help faculty understand what it is and how to be effective and how to give that useful feedback so this works in the way that it was designed? So I think there are a couple of things. I mean, that's a great question. And so I think the truth is... so. In our training program, although it's you know July 18th, we haven't actually started implementing the EPAs, right? And we probably won't start until September 1st or so for a couple of reasons. Number one, I think interns in July, I mean, they're just trying to find the bathroom and, and the computer, right? That you know, asking them to do a bunch of assessments, that's just one more thing that they need. So you'd like to let them get settled in, get settled into the workflow, get used to being a doctor, right? Um, I think that's important. And I think trying to do it in July 1st for a bunch of interns is going to be hard. I think what we learned from the pilot, and I think what's really important, this takes a lot of resident and faculty development. And so, uh, you know, what we've done so far is, um, if you think about it, very few faculty members in most training programs do everything in general surgery. Most people do a relatively small subset of general surgery. And, and in many institutions, and ours is one of them, you know, you do rotations that are fairly specialty specific, like you have a colorectal surgery rotation or a MIS foregut rotation, or an acute emergency general surgery rotation. And only some of the EPAs will be relevant to each of those rotations. And so what we've started, what we've done is we've actually mapped the 18 EPAs to each of our rotations. And so it turns out that in our training program, most rotations will have three or four EPAs. Some of the really broad ones, like our VA general surgery rotation, probably will have seven or eight EPAs. 
that actually works out okay in our institution because that's a pretty educationally focused faculty. So they're likely to do a bunch of stuff. But each faculty member will likely only have to learn a relatively small subset of the EPAs, so maybe three, four. And so they can really master them. And so one of the first steps, I think, is to actually get those out to the relevant faculty. In a perfect world, every faculty would do it. I think realistically, if you could get a couple of faculty members on each rotation to really buy into this and do this, that would be useful. And if you let the residents know which EPAs are going to be evaluated on each rotation, they'll know which activities to seek faculty out about. And so uh, I think, you know, really assigning uh, EPAs to individual faculty and letting the residents know this is the rotation you're on. One could really, I think, you know, even get into the weeds a little bit more and say, hey, you know, you're the intern on emergency general surgery. I really want you to focus on the pre and the post-operative phase of these of the small bowel obstruction EPA, the acute abdomen EPA. Make sure you get the attendings to really, you know, watch you provide post-operative care. I think really making it pragmatic like that and, you know, letting the residents know, look, I, if you don't get a couple a week, you know, we're going to keep an eye on how many you're getting and, and you know, we're going to ask you to do that. So that I think is going to be like at a nuts and bolts level, you know, you're not going to do all 18 EPAs on all rotations. You're going to do a subset of the EPAs on each individual rotation. And, and your program, I think, needs to look at your rotations and really map out the EPAs and put them where they make sense and really where you focus on it. And I, and I think that will be really helpful. I think it'll help the residents too. It becomes overwhelming if you have to select from 18 EPAs. If you know you're just working on three or four, it's actually not that hard. Yeah, and I think when you put it that way, it's a lot more uh, digestible for sure yeah. and, and a bit you know, scarier than taking on all 18. And I do think you really have to educate the faculty. And, and we know from the pilot, the programs that did it the best, they really praised the people who did a lot of it. And the people who did none of it, you know, they would get a phone call from the program director, from the chair. It's like, hey, you know, you're not really doing this. Why are you not doing this? It's really important you do this. I think one of the other things that's really important from a nuts and bolts standpoint, and I think programs really need to think about this, is, um, you know, the only people who actually need to do this are the interns. But like if you picked a group of people to roll out an inter innovation on, that's probably the worst group to do it on. It's that group, right? So interns are going to be uncomfortable approaching faculty at their baseline, right? They don't know them very well. Faculty are super intimidating, right? They were just medical students. It's going to be really important that programs make everybody do it. And I think there's a couple of reasons for that. Number one, you know, each of the chief residents is required to have some operative and clinic assessments, and the EPA assessments are a lot easier to do than the cameos and the OPRS things that many people have been doing. I think the other thing is if the interns and junior residents see the chief residents doing it, it's sort of okay. It's like if the cool kids are doing it, then it's probably okay, right? And if if they're not, then, well, it's probably not important. If my chief doesn't do it, it probably doesn't matter. And so I think it's going to be really important to get the senior residents to get these evaluations and to really take a lead on it. Each program is really going to have to work hard to find a couple of residents. You know, in every training program, right, there's some residents who are, and I'm fortunate to be talking to a bunch of people who are, who are really interested in education. And if you get those people engaged and those people really dig into this, you know, I think that's going to be important. I think that, you know, seeing your peers do this is going to make this more acceptable but I, I, you know, you asked about implementation. I think one of the things that's really important and one of the messages that I would want people to hear as a program director is don't feel like you need to charge out of the gate. You really want to spend the time to lay the groundwork so that when you hit the ground, you hit the ground running. You don't want to sort of dribble out of the gate and then lose steam. And so I think that the advice that I would give to boots on the ground program directors and programs, take the time, get your faculty and your residents familiar with the EPAs, Make sure they understand where they're going to do it and set some metrics so that when they get started, they get started at a level. You have five years to collect all of these things. 
realistically. So you don't have to do it all in a day. Surgeons are like that, right? We want to, if we're going to do something, we want to get it done right away. It's just how we're made. But this is uh, this is a marathon, not a sprint. And you know, you don't you don't run your first mile in a marathon at a four minute pace. And so you you want to hit you want to hit the ground at a pace that allows you to do five years worth of EPAs, not three months. I want to briefly kind of talk about the app. Can you kind of explain how this app works, what what exactly it does? And also, are we going to be able to link our ACGMA cases to it that we can use this app for both EPAs and as well as logging cases? So the the app that the ABS is going to provide to programs for free comes from the Simple Collaborative. And many of your listeners, I suspect, have used the Simple app, for Simple OR, which is the sort of first iteration. And the folks at uh, PLSC at Simple have actually figured out a way when you initiate an evaluation that it does link to your ACGME case log. You know, one of the downsides of the EPA, so um, one of the things to think about about EPAs, EPAs don't certify your competence at all in general surgery. What they are is in essence a competence biopsy. There are 18 EPAs. There are a bunch of operations that are covered in those 18 EPAs, but there are a bunch of operations that aren't. There isn't a Whipple EPA, right? Because the average resident doesn't do enough of them for us to assess competence. And, and you know, we know that. And so there are many cases that won't be covered. So it's not going to completely replace the case log. But for those that are covered, um, the folks at Simple have already figured out how to do that with Simple OR to take you directly to the ACGME case log. And I and I suspect that that will be a feature of the Simple uh, EPA app eventually, right? That app is being rolled out and it's going to develop iteratively, right? It's an early stage product now. And over time, it will become increasingly sophisticated in part because of feedback from training programs. EPAs in many ways are kind of a quality improvement process. It's going to be an you know iterative data collection and improvement. As we work on this, we'll learn a lot of lessons as we do this across the nation that, that will help us get better. And so I think that um, likely you will be able to log EPA covered cases in your case log after you fill out the EPA evaluation because that's already been done with Simple OR. And so I'm confident that the, the Simple group will be able to make that happen with the EPAs as well. But there'll be a bunch of cases that aren't covered. Speaking of case logs, and I think this is probably one of the biggest questions that people have. So we use case numbers essentially as a surrogate for competency in the past. You hit your 850 cases. Theoretically, you should be a well-trained surgeon. That makes you board eligible. So how does EPAs or how do EPAs affect board eligibility? And how is that going to affect graduation timing, fellowship timing, things yeah. beyond uh, just your five years of clinical general surgery residency. So pragmatically, what the ABS has said is for the entering intern class of 2023, they will have to submit summative EPA assessments at the end of the training for all 18 EPAs. What it doesn't specify is what level people will have had to achieve, right? And I think that's one of the questions that people ask, right? Do I have to be practice ready at every one of the 18 EPAs? To be board eligible. As a trainee, I would ask that question, right? And I would answer it, I think, this way. We probably know right now that not every general surgery trainee in America is practice ready in thyroid and parathyroid. We, we know that, right? Some training programs do a lot of it. Some don't do a lot of it. I think we would like trainees at some point to be practice ready in all 18 EPAs, but that will probably require some changes in the structure of training. So one of the things that is required now for you to be board certified and is that your program director has to sign off and say you're ready to practice general surgery independently. And and I can just tell you as a pro I've been a program director. This is my 14th year as a program director. So when the first year I did it, you know, people shoved that in front of me 
and asked me to sign that for each of these guys. And I was like, I have no idea. And I don't even know how to measure it. Right. And so in a way, the 18 EPAs have been developed to create a common language for program directors to sign off on that. I would hope that a program director would be super uncomfortable saying a, a chief resident who requires direct supervision to do an appendectomy is ready to be a practicing general surgeon. That doesn't compute to me. Like if you if you need direct supervision to do an appendectomy, you're probably not ready to practice independently, right? I think if you are at indirect supervision for thyroid and parathyroid, you're probably okay to practice. That's a place where many people will do a fellowship. But for the core things, managing a patient with a bowel obstruction, assessing a patient with trauma, doing a gallbladder, doing a hernia, seeing a consult, I would expect people to be practice ready. The board has not specified that. And I think, you know, we don't know how that's going to turn out. I think what we know from the data that we've collected, there's a lot of variability in graduates, right? There's variability across training programs and graduates aboard passage rates. As someone who's given oral exams for a long time, I can tell you there's a lot of variability in people's performance on oral exams. And EPAs, I think the purpose of EPAs would be for us to establish the floor of competence, that we would say that every general surgeon who finishes a residency should be at this level, at this floor level, and that if they're below the floor, we should be uncomfortable saying they're ready to practice independently. But the floor doesn't necessarily have to be practice ready at each one of the 18 EPAs, right? For some, it probably, it could be direct supervision. Although again, if if that's the case, then that might not be a properly selected EPA. I would assume that, you know, at a minimum, people would be at indirect supervision for most of these and there are a bunch of them that I think I would be uncomfortable saying someone's ready to practice if they're not practice ready. I think one thing that's important, and I would want the residents to understand this, and this is something we debated a lot when we created the EPAs, you don't really, as a trainee, want your certifying organization to know that in your fourth year, you were behind your peers, right? Yeah, that's that's uncomfortable. That would make you uncomfortable, right? Is that going to affect my ability to be certified? And, you know, initially when we thought about this, we thought about the board thought about this as an educator, like we want to report every six months of how people are progressing. But it became very clear to us as we thought about this and talked about people at some level, that's none of our, that's none of the board's business. The board just needs to know where you are at the time that you submit for certification. And so all that's going to be required from residents to submit to the board is their summative EPA ratings at the end of training. So if, if it takes you until the end of your chief year to be practice ready in some things, that's fine as long as you're practice ready at the end. And I think that's really valuable because if we said everybody had to be practice ready at every EPA, then what's going to happen is the faculty are going to just mark people as practice ready and they're not going to give them honest assessments. And so I think it's important that this data be honest because if it's not honest, it's actually not going to help trainees and it, it, it's probably not going to help the public. From the American Board of Surgery standpoint, and again, I'm I'm not speaking officially, but I, this is what I learned on the board. The thing that weighs on you the most as a member of the American Board of Surgery is your obligation to protect the public and to make sure that every surgeon that we say is board certified is a safe and effective surgeon, right? That's our goal. If we could achieve that, that's amazing, right? Because then what we're really saying is as a profession, we're really all about making sure surgeons who go out and take care of the American public are, are ready to do it. That is something we should be proud of. And that's, I think, that part of the intent of this. The board actually gets no clinical performance information on residents, right? If you think about what you're required to submit, uh, what, what the chief residents who graduated uh, just a few weeks ago were required to submit, they submitted a case log, they submitted a bunch of licensing data, and they submitted FLS, FES, a couple of operative assessments. We actually don't really ever test people's ability to do operations in the American board. We'd, we test their ability to describe operations, 
We test their ability to recognize which operation should be done at the right time, but we never actually watch people operate and we delegate that to program directors, but we've never told program directors which operations they should focus on. And I think that's a, a part of what the EPAs are intended to do is to create a common language for every program director in America to say, I'm comfortable this person's ready to practice surgery because I've looked at these 18 things that the board said are really important. And actually, if you look at them, really do reflect kind of general surgery. And, and I'm pretty comfortable that, that I've assessed them and they're capable of performing this at a reasonable level. It's pretty wild when you put it that way. Uh, the, the, we don't really know uh, who can operate. Like you said, you, can, you get your case logs and you sit in the, uh, well, I guess no longer hotel room behind the computer and yeah. your oral and written boards done. Um, so do you have any, we, we, we've covered a lot, but you have probably answered a whole lot of questions um, in different contexts. So do you have any kind of rapid take-home points or frequently asked questions that you could also address, maybe addressing attendings, um, senior residents slash fellows, and the intern class? I think what I would actually, um, what I would do is I think, so this is billed as an assessment. Right. And, and as a general rule of thumb, assessments are test, assessments are bad, right? Assessments are scary. I would actually flip this equation and I would actually view EPAs as a coaching tool, right? I think if we train surgeons properly, we're really coaches. The attendings are coaching, you know, the residents to be full grown surgeons. And I think that um, if we view these as low stakes assessments, you know, it's a little bit like when you're playing baseball or, or soccer, right? You know, if, if you're hitting and every time you hit, you smack it right into the ground and it doesn't get out of the infield, right? You need somebody to to coach you and show, show you how to hit the ball better so that you can actually hit a home run every once in a while. Or if, you know, you're doing corner kicks and every time you can't get it up in the air, right? You need your coach to show you how to transfer your weight and how to get underneath the ball and pop it up and put it where it needs to go. And, and that's what we need with surgery is we need you to say, hey, I saw you do this today. There are a couple of things I need you to do to do it better the next time. And, you know, based on this, this is where you're at. And and these are the things you need to do to do better. And I think, you know, from a resident standpoint, I would say get as much feedback as you can. Feedback will make you better. And um, uh, I think from an attending standpoint, if these EPAs are necessary, and this is a message that I would give to attendings, because I think, you know, a lot of people are like, why would I do this? So, so I just want to flip this equation on its head a little bit. If getting these EPA assessments is necessary for residents to become board certified. And being board certified is sort of the whole point of residency, getting to be board certified. Attendings who don't fill these out are rapidly become, gonna become a barrier to resident progress. And as a program director, I'm not gonna send residents to work with people who are getting in their way. But I would say from a personal standpoint, this is a lesson that I learned. So we've been, uh, we've used simple OR for a long time. And I would say as a faculty member, it's actually changed the way I teach because at the end of every case, I commit to doing a simple evaluation and I finish every case and I say, these are three things I hope you learned from this case today. I tell people that at the ending and then I dictate that in my comments at the end. And I will tell you that the residents really appreciate that. And I think that as a faculty member, we all want to be the best teachers, right? You know, that's how we are. We all want to think we have a ton to teach. And, and by becoming that person who the residents reliably view as a coach, you're going to get better teaching evaluations. You're going to have residents want to work with you. And, and it's going to be more fun and you're going to feel like you're meaningfully impacting people. And so uh, EPAs were not first done in surgery. They were actually first done in pediatrics in the United States. And they've done a bunch of studies and, and they find that pediatric attendings have much more teaching satisfaction with EPAs than they do with, with end of rotation evaluations. They've, done, they've got some hard data that shows that. And, and I think we're going to discover that as surgeons, right? 
we're going to be providing feedback on the things we actually like to do, which is to operate and take care of patients. And, you know, that feedback is going to increase your interaction with the residents and, and I think create some satisfaction. And I, I would say that it's no secret and, you know, surgery is getting harder and harder. Being a doctor is getting harder and harder. We're running faster and faster with less help. And we all need things that are make this fun again. And I think this kind of coaching really has the opportunity to make surgery fun again for attending. That would be my message. Like this is going to actually make it more fun. So that, I think one other thing for attendings. So I think one of the implications of this, the end of rotation evaluations that they all are asked to fill out right now with like 26 mm -hmm. questions, which are really hard to answer. Those can probably go away if you do a bunch of EPA evaluations. So I think the implication of this, if you spend a few minutes at the end of patient care, you know, and if you did it twice a day, like that would be 10 evaluations a week for a resident that you worked with every day, right? That'd be a ton of feedback. That would be amazing. How many uh, years till you think this is a smooth operation? I think, I think two to three. I think two to three. I think people will, I think if you are going to ask me what this looked like in three years, I suspect most of the residents will be pretty aggressive about seeking EPA evaluations because I think they'll figure out that it actually is helping them get better faster. And it's actually helping them get to do what they want, which is to operate faster. I think probably a third to half of the faculty will become reliable EPA evaluators. And those people will win more teaching awards and get more kudos from the residents. And you know, when they're when they have to make decisions about uncovered cases, I think the people who give them a lot of feedback are going to find they never have uncovered cases. So I think one of the things we haven't really talked about today, so this is competency-based education. And one of the things about competency-based education is it can be time variable. I think that's not likely to happen. I think what could happen if this really takes off, right? There are EPAs for all of the fellowships and the board is going to write EPAs for all the fellowships. I think residents who quickly master their general surgery EPAs could begin to move on to fellowship EPAs in their general surgery training, which would allow them to get to their fellowships better prepared and potentially get more out of their fellowships and, and maybe create a model where people could transition to their fellowships you know, a few months early if they stayed at the same institution. I don't want to promise them, but I do think that this has the potential to make surgery education more logical and make it about what you can do rather than how long you've been doing it. Thank you so much for your insight. We really, really appreciate it, especially someone kind of on the ground who has to now implement these with their own residents. Um, just thank you so much for your time. Yeah. Uh, here's, here's one dirty little secret. So we were a pilot institution program and we were not one of the good ones. So this is hard. I would say that, right? We uh, we had a handful of people who did these, and we. So I think it's you know getting a lot of faculty to do it is a challenge for PDs, and and I think it's going to be necessary. No, that's helpful to hear. So uh, yeah. thank you so much again. My and I think we should note too. So there's a lot of great resources on the uh, APS yeah. EPA resource page. It's a single website that links to a whole bunch of different stuff, including the EPAs themselves, uh, useful videos, educational tools, et cetera. It's actually uh, pretty impressive and, and quite uh, quite useful. So I, we'll put that in the show notes as well for people to access. All right. Well, again, thanks thanks a lot for joining us and uh, to everyone listening out there, dominate the day. All right, Jessica, Dan, uh, that was a awesome conversation with, with Dr. Sarosi. He's really an, the expert on this and it's really cool to have his insight as a PD uh, you know, kind of boots on the ground and getting this program up and running. And so I want to hear what you guys think about everything, but, I, you know, I'll, I'll go ahead and get my thoughts right now too. And I think these EPAs are actually really exciting because I think it's the first 
opportunity that we have to provide serial assessments of someone's actual competency. If you really think about it, we don't have that right now. And to me, that's really exciting. I also am really intrigued about how this ABS project EPAs interact with the ACGME, which sets these core competencies uh, and milestones uh, that you have to achieve, which are in fact validated, but uh, oftentimes, in my opinion, don't link up to real life or any practical evaluation of how a trainee is performing. Uh, and so I think that's going to be really cool to see how these EPAs just put pressure in some ways on these, uh, what I think are, are inferior mechanisms of evaluating trainees. And really, again, what we want, we all want more feedback. We all want autonomy. We all want to be competent. And this speaks directly to that. And even if you're not a education junkie or at all, just if you're just interested in these things, that website we mentioned is actually really interesting. You could spend one hour up to two hours really and get so many, uh, there's a lot of really great videos they did there that I actually listened to them. I, don't, I wasn't watching when I was driving, but I listened to them in the car and that was more than sufficient. Uh, they really explain this this very well. And if you start thinking about it, there's data there for and all that. It's really not that scary of a thing. It's easy to do. The second part I think is really interesting is the technology aspect of it. So uh, there's an app simple that's been targeted or decided on as being the, the primary app that the ABS supports. There's other ones out there which can be pretty neat and can uh, perhaps relieve some pain points for people like logging cases. I think that technology aspect of, of it is really exciting too. And, and we all know that it, it's got to be the, uh, a snazzy smartphone app, but I'm curious to see how that iterates uh, over time. Uh, Dan, any any thoughts on the interview? Yeah, I, I agree with you that we've always needed a competency-based approach to surgical training and that we shouldn't just grant people permission to go out there and operate because they finish a five-year general surgery residency. So I find the implementation of this of these EPAs to be a very good thing for surgical education. What I found interesting from our talk with Dr. Sorosi, though, was that we've already now rolled out these EPAs as of July 1st as a competency-based tool, but the American Board of Surgery hasn't set a baseline to as to where residents need to be when they submit their EPAs at the end of their training. So we want this to be a competency-based tool, but yet learners can be below competency and still be submitting and potentially gaining approval to, to move on. So I do think that there are changes that will that will come with all of these EPAs as as time goes on. Uh, like Dr. Sorry said, he, th- he believes about two to three years for this to to kind of become a, a better product. But, uh, you know, I'm interested in, like I said, I think I think it will be a, a great tool once once we iron out the kinks. Yeah. An iterative process for sure. Uh, I think it's, iter- it's it's iterating live, and, and one of the I thought too was a bit surprised that it's rolled out as it has. It seems very fast. Um, it's highly reliant on individual programs to educate their trainees, to educate the attendings, etc., uh, on how to even evaluate a patient or a trainee using an EPA. And so, uh, even folks like like ourselves who are involved in surgical education, some of this was Jessica said. Jessica sent me the the ABS webpage that we're going to post in the show notes. And that's how I got a lot of my education. And so there's a lot of education that needs to happen. Tons of education needs to happen. Uh, Jess, what do you think? Yeah, I think I agree. I think this is going to be, there's definitely going to be some growing pains to this. And I think if people are patient with that and understanding of that, but still understanding that this is where surgical education is going and needs to go, 
then I think that it will continue to evolve and eventually become what I think we all have in our heads of what it's going to be, this like much more comprehensive assessment of residents and whether or not they are safe and competent to operate. Kind of like what Dr. Sorosi said, like our main job is to train surgeons that can take good care of the public. But that takes a lot of work. And I really appreciated him when he said that in the pilot study, even UF, who's a big academic center, really focused on education, they'll struggle to get these done. But that doesn't mean that we should just give up on it. It means it's going to take a lot of work. And I think we all have to kind of understand that this is good. It's EPAs are a better way of assessing our residents and they're a better way of graduating trainees that are going to take really good care of patients. And with that sort of goal in mind, I think the work then will come easily over time with these small kind of changes as we sort of figure out what works and what doesn't work. Yeah, I think that's really instructive talking about UF and slow rolling it, right? In terms of uh, when it's going to move into the fall before they're actually going to uh, implement the EPA program. I, w- I would love uh, as a resident to have looked at, to have seen changes over time in, in my performance uh, compared to other residents, areas of weakness, et cetera. Uh, how great would that be? Then you then you know, you can work on it. And, and how nice would that be? Um, and to be able to trust the information that you're looking at, right? If you have so many hundreds of data points and you know that there's a wide variety of your attendings that you work with filling it out, you're going to be like, well, this is this is probably true as opposed to you get some evaluation at the end of your month on a certain rotation and maybe one of the attendings didn't like you or whatever it may be. And there's it's a popularity contest or something. You get some very subjective type feedback that was put together, you know, in a couple minutes of a handful of people hashing it out on a, on a uh, clinical competency type committee thing. How much better to have that that true objective uh, information? I think that's all very exciting. So, all right. Well, we'll we'll. I think we're definitely gonna have to follow this over time uh, behind the knife, and that we will uh, see where where the EPAs take us. Be sure to check out our website at www.behindthenife.org for more great content. You can also follow us on Twitter at Behind the Knife and Instagram at Behind the Knife Podcast. If you like what you hear, please take a minute to leave us a review. Content produced by Behind the Knife is intended for health professionals and is for educational purposes only. We do not diagnose, treat, or offer patient-specific advice. Thank you for listening. Until next time, dominate the day.